Hello and good morning. I'm Andrew, one of the elders at Magdalen Road, and it's my great uh, privilege to be speaking to you this morning. I'd like to start with uh, a very short prayer and lead us in prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we love your word. We know that in your word you speak to us, you challenge us, you comfort us, you encourage us, you lead us. And may you speak to each one of us individually this morning and also as families and as a church and so equip us and resource us and empower us for your service. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week in our sermon in the uh, morning service, we started to look at the book of Exodus, uh, the second book of the Bible, the book that follows uh, Genesis. And we saw that Exodus means just that. It means Exodus, an, an exit, a departure, as it tells us the story of the departure, the exit of God's people from a time of great oppression and exploitation and cruel um, slavery in Egypt. And God brings them out of Egypt under the leadership of the great uh, Moses. And this is the story of Exodus, and we'll be looking at it over the next few weeks and across the summer. Now, it always strikes me that Exodus, in some ways, is the biggest story, the biggest event in the Old Testament. Because time and again in the prophets and certainly in the Psalms and in other places, the Old Testament looks back to this rescue, this deliverance that God effected with his people, bringing them out of, of Egypt. And uh, we need to remember that as we look through uh, over these next weeks in the book of uh, Exodus. Now, I think we can say that in a real sense, the Old Testament is a classroom. It's a classroom where we go and learn certain lessons, uh, certain teachings that point us to the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. And the Old Testament helps us prepare for the coming of Jesus and to understand the significance and the importance of Jesus when, when he comes. We learn in the Old Testament how to interpret and understand the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. And here in the story of Exodus, this rescue, this uh, deliverance, we have a, a pointer or a foreshadowing of an even greater event, which is our rescue and our deliverance through Jesus Christ from sin and death and fear and guilt and the works of the devil. This great salvation that Jesus Christ uh, uh, brings about for us on the cross and through his resurrection. This is something that we can learn about its significance and importance as we study the Exodus, this ancient story of God's rescue of his people. And that's something else to remember as we go through uh, the book of Exodus. Last week, we looked at chapters one and two, and our assistant pastor, Phil, took us very helpfully through these opening, uh, opening sections. We saw the suffering of the people, the great misery of the people. It was a, a kind of dark time and God, uh, you, you could say, seemed very absent from his people. Um, and we know even today in the set of circumstances that we are in and the situation that we face, 
we can feel very often uh, that God is somehow absent and we're passing through a very, uh, a very dark time. I know that's been the experience of, of many. But um, Phil very helpfully pointed us uh, to some key truths that uh, we find even in the opening chapters of Exodus. First of all, we're not to forget what God has already done for his people. We're not to forget that God is still at work, as we looked at the details of some of these opening verses. We saw how God continued to be at work among his people. And we learnt also of the power of prayer as God's people cried out to him in their suffering and in their ministry. And God heard them and God came to answer them. And today I want us to look at chapter three and into part of chapter four, uh, the story of the burning bush. And one commentator has described this as the most important and vivid scenes in the whole of the Bible. Um, a remarkable uh, passage, um, full of detail uh, and full of um, helpful encouragement for us, as I hope, as I hope we can see. It's a long passage, it is detailed. Um, I'm going to keep it as simple as I possibly can, for my own sake as well as for yours. Quite a lot of it we can't deal with, but I do want to look at two particular features in the passage. I think the main features. Uh, one is Moses, the person of Moses, and his response to the call that God gives to him. And then secondly, I want to go on and look at what we would say about this revelation of God in this divine name, I am. Strange phrase, I am who I am. But I, I want us to look at that and see what we can draw out of it. But let's begin, first of all, with Moses. Moses is about 80 when uh, this passage begins. Uh, we know a little of his life. He was, of course, born at a time when there was an edict from the Egyptians that the uh, little boys of the Hebrews should be put to death as soon as they were born. And his mother saves him by putting him in a basket and floating him on the River Nile. And he lands up in some bulrushes and is rescued actually by Pharaoh's daughter himself. So uh, Joseph, uh, Moses' early life um, is in the uh, Egyptian palace of Pharaoh. He's effectively brought up as uh, an Egyptian. Although he remembers, of course, he is a Hebrew and he remains loyal to his own people. And we read last time that there's an incident that when Moses was a young man, he saw one of his fellow Hebrews being abused and attacked uh, by an Egyptian. And he goes to the defense of this man in the course of which he kills the Egyptian and he's forced to flee. He flees to Midian and there he meets and marries the daughter of the Midian priest Jethro and he settles down and he has a family and his work as far as we can discern is as a shepherd on behalf of his father-in-law Jethro looking after his father-in-law's uh, sheep. And that as our passage opens is just what Moses is doing. He's shepherding his, feet, his, his sheep right down in the south of the Sinai Peninsula, close to Mount Horeb, as it's uh, described for us, also known as Mount Sinai, the mountain of the Lord, the mountain where Moses received the law, uh, the Ten Commandments. 
and while he's shepherding the sheep, he sees a most unusual sight, a very strange sight of a bush that appears to be on fire, but is not being burnt up. A bush that's on fire, but is not being consumed. And I think I have to say at this point that the burning bush is the emblem of worldwide Presbyterianism. And as a Presbyterian, I'm very sensitive to that. It um, uh, remains the emblem of the Presbyterian Church wherever you would encounter it. In my own church, the Church of Scotland, uh, there are many occasions where you'll see the emblem of the burning bush, often with the tag uh, Latin line, nec tamen consume barter. And I'm sure I don't need to tell a, an Oxford church that that means but was not consumed, but was not burnt up. And this is the setting for God's call, uh, God's commission uh, to Moses. He calls out to Moses, Moses, Moses. And Moses draws near and God says, don't come any closer, Moses. Take off your sandals for this is holy ground. And it really is a, a dramatic setting and a dramatic scene. And this is the call and the commission of God to Moses. God has heard the cries and the suffering of his people. He knows their miserable circumstances. And now he has come to rescue them. Let's look at verses seven of chapter three and, and, and afterwards. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And at verse 10, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, up out of Egypt. The call to Moses from God was clearly unexpected, uh, sudden, and it's clear from Moses' response that he felt very ill-prepared, very ill-equipped, very inadequate for, for what he was going to be asked to do. Now, I think it's very foolish to compare ourselves to Moses, and I, I'm not wanting to do that, but there's something in the response here of Moses, something in his reaction that actually does speak to us, because there are five separate occasions where it seems Moses declares to the Lord that he's simply not fit to do this work. He's not, he's not prepared for it. He's, he's not competent to do it. He doesn't have the confidence to do it. And I think here this speaks very much to us. On the first occasion, verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites up out of Egypt? The second time, verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And at verse one of chapter four, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? And then again at verse, uh, at verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, O oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. 
And then the fifth occasion when he declares this sense of inadequacy and, and weakness and <clears throat> uh, ill-preparedness to, uh, to the Lord, he says, Moses says to the Lord, verse 13, Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Please send someone else to do it. Does that ring a bell with some of you? Does that uh, remind you of how often we can respond to a call and a commission and an instruction? Please send someone else. I think that's very familiar. I think that does speak to us. I think that that points up our often weak and inadequate response to something that we're asked to do. When we are called into Christian discipleship, when we are called to membership, when we are called into the mission of the church, whatever form that may take, how often we feel ill-prepared and, and ill-equipped. And we want to say, oh Lord, please send someone else, ask someone else to do it. But God says to Moses, as he says to us, you can do it. You can do it because I'm going to be with you. Don't think you can't do it. Don't think you're ill-prepared. You're too weak. You're too inadequate. You can do it. And I'm going to be with you to see that you do it. And friends, that's such a wonderful encouragement. And I wonder someone here, perhaps uh, watching this morning, who is feeling very much that God might be asking you or telling you to do something or calling you to do something and you feel, oh Lord, please send someone else, please get someone else to do it. I want to say to you, as, as I often feel that and as the Lord says to me, you can do it. You can do it because I am going to be with you. And we know that in these past months of COVID, so many people have felt troubled and discomforted, who have had hard times, who've suffered. We know how many feel tired and even exhausted and weary and burdened by this. And we face as a church the very uh, real uh, problems of taking forward the old schoolhouse and making a success of that. And we have a, a key meeting on Tuesday evening to try and take that forward. And in all of this, the Lord says to us, you can do it. You can do it because I am with you. Well, we've looked at Moses and something of his response. And I want to turn now to the second feature of this passage, the revelation of God through the name I am. And we pick up the uh, uh, story at verses 13 and 14. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what is his name, then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Well, what's in a name? We take great care when we name our children, and I'm sure our parents took great care when they named us to choose good names, appropriate names, names perhaps of family members, people who were much loved and respected in the family in an earlier generation, or perhaps a, 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 the name of a good friend, or just names that we liked. And so we choose our names for our children. But in the Bible, names have a very particular significance. Nearly always with a name in the Bible, 
there's some reference to the life of that person and to the character of that person. For example, the name Abraham means the father of many. And you remember the call uh, uh, to Abraham and uh, the promise of God uh, when he calls Abraham that he will be the father of many, the father of many nations. Or think of Isaac, which means he laughs or laughter. We think of the story of uh, Isaac's mother, Sarah, who was childless and uh, in her elderly years. And when she's told she's to have a baby, she laughs because she can hardly believe it. Or the name Jacob means he deceives. And if you know the story of Jacob in the Old Testament, you'll know there's much that's uh, deceiving and there's much deception in it. Or the name Moses, which means drawn out. And we can immediately think of Moses being drawn out um, from the river Nile uh, by uh, Pharaoh's daughter when she finds him in uh, the basket where his mother has put him to, to make sure he escapes. The names are significant in the Bible and above all the name of Jesus. Jesus means he saves, he is saviour. And we think of the angel's command to Joseph before Jesus is born and the angel says you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Names are significant. And so is God's name here. This is a very significant and very important revelation that speaks a great deal about God. Moses asks God what name he should use when he speaks to the Israelites. And God answers, I am who I am. And you may have a note in your Bibles to say that that can also mean I will be who I will be. And this is a new self-revelation from God. It's uh, speaking about things that were not clearly known before. It's saying much more than that God was merely the father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God now reveals himself as I am. It is a personal name. It is a quite intimate name. It's a name that points to his eternal character but also to his present activity amongst his people. And we'll see as we look at um, the different chapters of Exodus over these next few weeks, how God is actively involved amongst his people. I am. Later on, of course, we can think of the name given to Jesus, Emmanuel. God with us. We think of the incarnation that God has taken human form and flesh to come among us. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We see what's revealed to us in this name, I am. And it strikes me that what's revealed above all is the greatness of God. Our God is a great God, a mighty God. He's far beyond anything that we can imagine or conceive or describe. He is a great sovereign God, and that's revealed here uh, in the name I am, as it is in the events uh, that will follow. And what an encouragement to us that our God is a, a mighty God, a sovereign God, and he loves us. 
He loves us with a love that will not let us go. And he hears and answers our prayers. And I've often been humbled and astonished to think that God loves us even in the details of our lives, the little things in our lives that we would hardly trouble him with. And yet they are important to Jesus and they are important to God, our, our mighty God. So God hears, God saves, God is active among us according to his promise. He is the great I am. And I said earlier that we can think of the Old Testament very much as a classroom where we go to learn lessons and to learn teaching that point us to Jesus. So that when we have come to the New Testament and we've been well schooled in the Old Testament, the New Testament makes so much more sense. The significance of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is made so much uh, 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 clearer to us. It's, it's so much more significant and important. And just as an example of that, let's touch briefly on the I am sayings of Jesus. In John's Gospel, strategically placed, there are seven um, sayings of Jesus that begin uh, with the divine name, the divine words, I am. And it's absolutely clear that John wants us to understand that through these I am statements, Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. He is reflecting and laying claim to his divinity. And of course, that was so offensive to some of the religious leaders that they, they picked up stones on one occasion to stone him. And of course, they, they sought finally his crucifixion. Just let me touch on three quite briefly. Jesus said, and it's the first of the statements, I am the bread of life. And he says this after he's fed the 5,000. And he goes on to say, anyone may eat this bread and not die. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. An indication of the cross and resurrection to come. Let me take a second example. I am the light of the world. And Jesus makes this statement just before he heals a blind man in John's Gospel. In other words, he makes the claim and he follows it with an action that shows that this claim is justified. He performs this miracle in order to let uh, light into this man's life and a symbol of the light uh, that is in Jesus Christ. Some of you may know the great pre-Raphaelite painting by Holman Hunt, The Light of the World. It's one of the greatest religious paintings of all times and it hangs here in Oxford in the uh, College Chapel at Keble. And I guess if you go to the Porter's Lodge and ask her to get into the chapel they'll let you in uh, for free. And it's well worth looking at this, uh, this picture. It's a picture of Jesus. He has a light in uh, one hand and the uh, lamp, the, the lantern, casts a light upon a door in the side of a house. And the door is shut. And it's clearly not been opened for a very long time. It's overgrown with weeds and thorns and brambles. And Jesus' hand is raised and he's knocking on the door. And we remember the lovely words in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. The words of Jesus, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open up to me and let me in, 
I will come in and eat with him. An absolutely wonderful picture that we have of Jesus as the light of the world and our need to let him in to the darkness of our world and to be the light of the world to us. And then thirdly, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says this just before he raises his good friend Lazarus uh, from the dead. He makes the claim and he follows it with the action that shows that the claim is true and justified. And we know that apart from Jesus, there is no resurrection. And apart from Jesus, there is no eternal life. And in Jesus Christ, we share the resurrection life of him who said, I am the resurrection and the life, whose name is the only name by which we may be saved. So this wonderful passage, um, to make it simple and to keep it simple, I wanted to say something about Moses and how he responds to this commission, to this call at the burning bush. And then to look at <coughs> uh, the name I am, the revelation of God, in a little more detail and to see how it points us to Jesus himself and how Jesus takes this name to reveal himself to us as the Son of God and our Saviour. And I want to end by telling you a little story which I think I've told before, but one that made a lot of impression on me. A friend of mine, a good a deal older than myself, but a friend of mine who'd been chaplain in the Second War in one of the Scottish regiments and his unit came under fire in France after the Normandy invasion. A number of men were uh, wounded and one was mortally wounded and clearly in the last minutes of his life, but he was conscious. And my friend gathered him in his arms and drew him uh, to himself to give him as much comfort as he could. And he was surprised when the man turned to him and said, Padre, is Jesus God? And my friend, who is a wonderful Christian and a, a wonderful believer, could say in all sincerity, yes, Jesus is God. And the man died with these words in his ears and by the grace of God, these words in his heart. And we face uncertainty today. There's the continuing threat of the pandemic, which is by no means over. As a church, we face all the uncertainty of how we develop and go forward with the old school house. And in our own particular and individual lives, there may be some very particular things that are challenging and difficult for us. But friends, we can have supreme confidence that in approaching God, we approached him who revealed himself as the great I am, the mighty and the holy God. And he says to you, as he says to me, as he calls us into his service, you can do it. You can do it because I'm going to be with you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let me close with a short word of prayer. Father God, we pray that you'd lay this word in our hearts, that we may reflect upon it. We may be open to its truth and its goodness. And in every way, as we go forward, we look to give you the glory that is your due and to live as you call us to live and to be worthy of him who is indeed your son, the great I am, Jesus Christ, as we seek to establish and 
grow his kingdom. And this we ask in his name. Amen.